Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, we the people. Why, why aren't you saying anything? You're supposed to play the thing, aren't you? Oh, but you won't be able to hear that. That's a good point, actually. That's an excellent point. So, okay. Welcome to the LexRex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Trucial, lead writer for the LexRex Institute. And I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush, president of the LexRex Institute and a constitutional attorney. Although I won't be speaking in that capacity on this podcast. Before we begin, please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the LexRex Institute. The LexRex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn more about our activities or make a donation, please visit our website, LexRex.org. That's L-E-X-R-E-X.org. As a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues. As Alexis de Tocqueville noted, though, in the U.S., legal issues invariably tend to become political ones. And today, now that more issues are considered political than ever before, we believe it's especially important to distinguish between the two. Our name, Lex Rex, is Latin for the law is king, because in the United States, the law is our only king and every other leader is subject to it. David, we got to cut down on the length of that intro eventually. I think that's got to be a slong to listen to, no? It, probably, but, you know, you wrote that version, so I didn't want to step on any toes. Hmm. We'll think about that. Maybe it can fall at the end. But anyway, we've got a full program for you guys today. Uh, you know, we have two whole subjects that we're discussing, <laughs> so hopefully we can keep that within an hour. I think it may be a little bit more doable than some of our past objectives. So today we'll be talking to you guys about... Well, what will we be talking about? Oh, we've got another entry in our Supreme Court Hall of Shame, a truly shameful one for you guys today. It's Korematsu v. United States, followed by a brief discussion of the Alex Jones case that yeah. recently, um, where, where an award of $45.2 million was recently given. Actually, more than that. I think that was just the punitive damage number. Yeah. And then the first introduction of our new segment, Captain Kangaroo Court. So we're all going to look forward to that, <laughs> but you know. Let's try to keep it under an hour. So let's launch straight into Korematsu. David, what's going on in this case? Well... Oh, we're supposed to play that intro thing. Play the intro. Yeah. So a truly shameful decision today, Korematsu v. United States. So this is a case that was decided on December 18th, 1944. And if you are a student of history, or even if you just remember even the barest details of whatever history you were forced to learn in school, you probably know this is during World War II. Yeah, hopefully. Anyway. Well, yeah, hopefully you know that. <laughs> yeah. So who was involved in World War II, David? You know, that's a war. Wars can get kind of mixed together in people's minds. Which countries were involved in World War II? Well, lots of them, hence the, you know, world war. But in this case, we're... Part so that, that wasn't like, that wasn't Earth versus Mars. That wasn't a war of the world. No. That was a world war, no, right? Those are different things? Separate thing, yeah. Okay. In, the, in this case, we're most particularly concerned, though, with the United States. Hopefully that was obvious. And Japan, the Empire of Japan. The Empire of Japan. Yes. So Korematsu v. United States is a case that concerns what some of you may remember from high school, but probably a lot of you won't because for some reason it gets a lot less attention than, than some other things that history teachers like to yeah. dwell on. But one of the 
most shameful periods. Well, of you, our... you know that you know why that is, David, right? You know why this gets less attention. Well, because it's something bad that FDR did, and you can't really argue that it. That's isn't exactly right. Something bad that FDR did, so we tend to ignore it. But one of the yeah, that's FDR is one of our greatest presidents, David. You know, uh -huh. he's the one that I've seen lists from historians where he's ranked at number one out of all of them. Quite quite a few higher than yeah. Washington, higher than Lincoln. Yep. You know, higher even than Trump. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, um, but in my opinion, one of the most shameful moments in our nation's history, an executive order of Roosevelt's that authorized military authorities to remove Japanese people, or excuse me, people of Japanese descent. Yeah, that's important. Yeah. Not Japanese people, no. American. Right, American citizens of Japanese descent from their homes, basically shepherd them into large internment camps and keep them penned there until the conclusion of the war on the suspicion that they may be, you know, fifth columnists for Japan, that these people were somehow not to be trusted, might be committing espionage or, you know, who knows really, but we... We don't really know, yeah. but they, they sure do look at you funny, don't they? You know, they don't <laughs> seem very trustworthy. We got to round them all up and send them to what at the time they called, although they would never use this term nowadays, concentration camp. Yeah. Which, you know... Uh, today, nowadays, you'll hear the much more common expression in tournament camps. It's the same thing. You know, right. Concentration camp is where you concentrate groups of people. Right. That's why they're called that. That's not a term that was specific to the Nazi regime at all. No. Although it definitely picked up some negative connotations from that. I think it probably always should have had yes. negative connotations. <laughs> I, but yeah. we're certainly never going to describe something that we do as a concentration camp after that point. Right. So instead, yeah, we, we sanitize it a bit. We say internment. We don't say concentration camps. But that's Yeah, and of course, this, this ends up being referred to as the Japanese internment, which right. is a misnomer because, as we mentioned, it is not an internment of Japanese people. It is an internment of Americans of Japanese ancestry. Right. Very, very different. Mm -hmm. These were not members of a... You know, they were not citizens of a foreign power. They were not citizens of any kind of military enemy against the United States. They were persons who happened to look similar to yeah. people from that nation. Yeah, exactly. So so just to be on the technical details of what's going on, part of what this order did, and it superseded an earlier order. So there had been previous executive orders issued saying that uh, curfews were imposed on persons of Japanese descent, where they were not allowed to leave their homes between the hours of 8 o'clock p.m. and 6 o'clock a.m. That may sound a little bit familiar to those of you who lived through the COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic, which is probably every single person listening to this podcast. The difference was that we didn't explicitly target that to certain racial minorities, yeah. which granted is a pretty big difference. But either way, it obviously deprives you of rights that you would ordinarily have yes. under the Constitution. So that gets extended under Executive Order 9066, which is issued on, yeah, it looks like February 19th, 1942. There you go. So just barely, barely two months after the attack on Pearl Harbor, right? Because the action that gets the United States involved in World War II is when the Empire of Japan sneak attacks Pearl Harbor. It's it's largely spun at the time as an unprovoked attack. That's not really strictly true in a military sense because the United States have been doing things like blocking rubber supply lines, blocking oil supply lines for the Japanese, keeping them from getting supplies. Uh, we also underlend lease. So according to the, the neutrality acts from the 1920s, it was prohibited for the United States to sell weapons 
to any country currently engaged in a war. Yeah. So what we did in Europe was we would lend weapons to the British so they could fight the Nazis. You know, if that's not selling, that's lending. So that was sort of our, our loophole there. Right. And then our loophole in the East was that we refused to acknowledge the state of war that existed between nationalist China and Japan. So we actually did sell weapons to the nationalist government of China, and they would use those weapons against the Japanese. So the Japanese considered these things to be acts of war, and because of that, attacked Pearl Harbor. The American uproar to the Pearl Harbor attack is obviously huge. I mean, they did a poll at one point during the war where they asked, like, what do you think should be done about the Japanese? It's like a quarter of the respondents said we should destroy every living thing on the island of Japan. So really, obviously a hugely disproportional response to what happened. Not saying Pearl Harbor was okay, not in any way apologizing or excusing that, but I think that, you know, killing every living thing on the island of Japan would probably be a bit worse. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I think of, we can agree to that, yeah, right? Yeah, a bit out of proportion. Yeah, I, I think I don't think that's controversial. No, Let us know I, if it I is. I don't think so. Uh, you can, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, that, that's sort of the context of this. So this executive order gets issued about two months, a little over two months after the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor. And what it does is it designates basically the entire west of the United States yeah. as, I think, a military zone is how they describe it. Was that the language they used, David? Or uh, some, something they... like that. You know, maybe a. A zone of military interest that might be, you know, bringing it up to our, our more modern <laughs> phraseology for that. Military sort of areas yeah. is the language used in there the executive order. Just yeah. looked it up. So, yeah, it, it allowed the Secretary of War to designate military areas and then say that we couldn't have people who are basically at risk of being enemy combatants yeah. occupying those areas. So, what happened is they ended up telling all people of Japanese ancestry, you got to show up to these assembly areas. Uh, bring a suitcase, and they showed up in assembly areas. They were loaded on buses and trains, and they were taken across the country, usually to places in Colorado or Wyoming, where they were forced to live for the next several years while this case was pending before the United States Supreme Court. Because as we mentioned, doesn't end up getting heard until, dis or rather decided, until December of 1944. Yep. So over two years, almost three years, they are held in detention. They keep them in these camps for a prolonged period of time while this case is pending. And yeah, that that's sort of the situation that we're dealing with. Uh, and you know, you look at, I don't want to get into too much of the detail here. This is really, if you don't know a lot about the Japanese American internment, it is absolutely worth researching because it's worth knowing the sorts of things that the American government will do to its own people yeah. if pushed far enough. Yes. It, it's a, there's a great museum in downtown Los Angeles, the Museum of the Japanese Internment, where they get into a lot of detail about it. But they were kept in basically wood frame structures with tar paper walls. These people lived in California. Most of them had been born and raised in California, by far the most populous state that had huge proportion Japanese descendants. Yep. We got pretty warm weather in California. Mm -hmm. You know, it's rare that I will go someplace where it drops below freezing. And if I do, you're going to hear me complaining about it. You know, I, I, I'm used to very, very moderate temperatures in California. Most Californians are. So tar paper structures, middle of Colorado, Wyoming. Yeah. Obviously, as you can imagine, not real pleasant living conditions. No. Oftentimes, I think in, in most cases, actually, the, the, the fathers were not permitted to see their children because the men were kept in different facilities from the women and the children. So families were split up. Uh, houses 
back at where the the uh, the people of Japanese ancestry lived, their houses were left totally unattended. They were looted, vandalized. These people had no idea how long they were going to be going away. Yep. When they were told to assemble, they brought one suitcase and were taken away for years to live in mass detention areas till the war was over. Yep. Based on nothing, you know, no suspicion about them of any kind. So, you know, this is obviously a terrible situation. And you wonder, why am I giving you a history lesson here? Because, well, when people sue for protection of their constitutional rights, there's a lot of different things they can be suing over. They can be suing over things where government's just done something kind of petty, or they can be suing over things where there's really been a major abuse, where a lot of different constitutional rights have been deprived. What I'm trying to show to you guys is this is clearly the latter sort of case. Right, absolutely. <laughs> so what do you do when rights get deprived? You file a lawsuit. And that's exactly what Korematsu does in this case. He says, hey, I don't think that what's going on here is constitutional. Solve that for me, Supreme Court. And, well, the Supreme Court, ever the hero, comes to the rescue, right, David? Saves him. <laughs> uh, if that were the case, we probably wouldn't be doing this on the Hall of Shame. So I think you can probably Oh, guess that's a fair point. That's what, a fair what point. What happens instead. <laughs> yes. So uh, this opinion is written by Justice Hugo Black. David, who appointed Hugo Black? Actually, not sure, but I'm going to guess FDR, since that's usually the answer. Yeah, this case is in 1944. FDR has been president for 11 years at this point. Uh Uh, Odds are who appointed Hugo Black, just if you're taking a random stab. Yeah, no, that's that's true. Yeah. Um, Yeah, he's an FDR appointee. I think that virtually every justice on the court is at this point. And of course, what president was the one who signed and issued this executive order? Why? FDR. Yes, why the very same man. Uh-huh. So that that's a very neat uh, neat thing going on there. That couldn't really cause any problems, I don't think. Nor could, you know, I don't think that Justice Black's other affiliations factored into this either. You know, he's a member of some clubs. You may have heard of one or two of them. Um, I don't know if club is the right word. Uh, you might want to describe it as a clan. Yeah, a, um, a faction of sorts. Um, a yeah. group of uh, costumed enthusiasts, let's say. <laughs> yeah, costumed enthusiasts who are very enthusiastic about the uh, Anglo-Saxon race uh-huh. over and against the other races. Right. Yeah. Uh, none other than the Ku Klux Klan mm-hmm. is what he was a member of. Yeah. I think he was actually some kind of wizard in the Ku Klux Klan. Needless to say, not a real fan of minorities. No. Um, you would hope, well, at first, I guess, I guess you would probably hope that no justices are going to be members of the Ku Klux Klan, but if they are... You would hope that those who are members of the Ku Klux Klan would be able to put those sorts of opinions aside <laughs> when ruling on constitutional issues, right? Because you don't want those sorts of opinions to influence judicial outcomes. That's not, Yeah, I think we can agree that's not going to be great, right? I, I understand I'm being a little bit more politically opinionated in this one than I usually am, <laughs> but these feel like fairly straightforward issues to voice yeah, political opinions on. I think you're within a fairly narrow Overton window on that particular issue. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, think that's, <laughs> well, good. I think that's fine. Yeah, so, yeah, I think it's, you know, I'll say that. I'll go out on a limb here. If you're a member of the Ku Klux Klan and on the Supreme Court, well, you ought to put those opinions aside <laughs> yeah. when judging issues of racial discrimination. I think we can safely say that much at least. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, maybe Justice Black did that. He doesn't say... You know, I hate Japanese people, and that's the reason why I want all of them rounded up and sent to camps. Yeah. What does he say instead? Well, in essence, he says there's a, you know, an unwritten part of the Constitution that basically goes, um, if we're at war, none of the foregoing 
really matters. Yeah, so there's an unwritten part of the Constitution that says that the written part of the Constitution ceases to operate while we're at war. Basically, yes. So in the past, jumping around here a little bit, I apologize for that. When we, when we talk about a racial discrimination case, which is fundamentally what this was, I mean, there, there's all sorts of rights that were being deprived, but the fundamental argument here is they're being deprived on the basis of someone's membership in a particular racial group. So, yeah. you know, what rights are being taken away? Let's go through those kind of briefly. I guess first is going to be your right to face your accuser because nobody's accusing you. Uh, your right to a trial by jury, yeah. since you're being deprived of liberties without any kind of due process of the law. That's, you know, your due process rights are being deprived. Your privileges and immunities rights are being deprived, since you are being deprived of privileges and immunities of citizens of any of the other states. You are also being deprived of privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. Let's see, what else? Your right to, I want to get to equal protection last, because that's ultimately what the rest are going to be grounded in. But, you know, you've got other things too. There's federalism issues here. The fact that this applies only in certain states and not others, and that it's a usurpation of the state police power, arguably, because federal government's the one that's enacting this. You know, if, if you got a bar exam question that said analyze the legal issues created by the Japanese internment, it would take up the entire hour segment. You wouldn't be able to get through all the issues before time ran. Yeah. There's a lot of constitutional rights that are being violated here. I don't want to go through all of them. just want you guys to get the idea that it's a lot of them. Yeah. But most significant ends up being due process rights under the 14th Amendment, because what that amendment says is that you cannot deny any person equal protection of the laws, which really, I think you can see why that's going to be the dispositive issue. Yeah. Because the rest of the other rights that are being deprived are being deprived because these people are of Japanese ancestry. So this right. racial discrimination component sort of prevails over the whole thing. You know, that's involved in every other aspect of it. We can dispose of the whole case if we determine that that's not allowed. And David, based on conversations in the past, can you think of any reason why it would be advantageous to Mr. Korematsu to ground the argument in racial discrimination, 14th Amendment? Well, basically, you know, you're going to need a lot of evidence to prove that what you're doing is allowed because that's going to get strict scrutiny. Yeah, and if you don't know what this uh, level of scrutiny concept is, there's a YouTube video on our YouTube channel. It's the Lex Rex Institute YouTube channel called What is a Balancing Test? That's part of our Ask an Attorney series. But basically, when it comes to most constitutional rights claims, at least when it comes to 14th Amendment claims, so equal protection ones, yeah. there's three levels of scrutiny that can apply. There's rational basis review, intermediate review, and strict scrutiny. And a huge part of what constitutional law entails is sort of arguing about which standard of scrutiny should apply, the various kinds of abuses. Because if something gets strict scrutiny, the person challenging the law almost always wins. It's very, very hard for the government to show that they can meet strict scrutiny. Yep. If rational basis applies, it's almost exactly the opposite. The government almost always wins. You can almost never show that a law fails to at least show some rational basis for its existence. There actually are ways around that, and Lex Rex Institute is eager to actually to bring rational basis review claims, but this is sort of the accepted orthodoxy in constitutional law. You want to argue about level of scrutiny, because if you can get strict scrutiny, you win. That's, that's the way this was viewed in the 1940s. That's the way that it's still largely viewed today. That's how this is kind of perceived to work. Yeah. So that's sort of the strategy in this case. If we can ground everything in these 14th Amendment equal protection claims, we win. 
because it's obviously racially discriminatory on its face. It says that it only applies to persons of Japanese ancestry. We basically don't need to prove this prong. Yeah. <laughs> the only question left for the court is whether or not it can meet that standard of scrutiny and nothing ever meets that standard of scrutiny. You know, there's like five cases where strict scrutiny is met. Mm -hmm. There's like, there's very, very few. So, you know, this is a slam dunk. We're surely going to win this. Yeah. That's the reason it's grounded in that. <laughs> yeah. The, the problem with that strategy turned out to be that if the opinion of the court just sort of steadfastly ignores the question of what scrutiny applies, you don't win. <laughs> yeah. I actually did a control F before we start. I don't know why I even bothered to do this because the opinion is only eight pages long. Yeah. What... In, in a court reporter, which are weird, narrow pages that are smaller than regular pages. Right. By the, by the way, that that's... For those of you who aren't aware, that's nothing. Yeah, that's minuscule. You know, the, the Dobbs opinion that just came out, the one that overturned Roe v. Wade? Yeah. Well, Alito understood that's a highly controversial social issue, so he spent plenty of time justifying his opinion. It ended up being about 200 pages long, yep. just for the majority opinion. Mm -hmm. Here we've got one on, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here. As important as, as people may view a woman's right to choose uh, may be, as important as that may be, yep. I really don't think that's as big as depriving an entire, you know, thousands of people without any evidence of any kind of basic constitutional liberties. Yeah. Because of their race. Yeah. No, like explicitly. You, you saw <laughs> like, you, you saw a number of people in the aftermath of the Dobbs case saying, oh, you know, this is treating women as second class citizens. Now, we're not going to get into Dobbs again. We've talked about Dobbs several times. But, you know, if that were true. If that, you know, if that, if that analysis is correct, it's implicit. Whereas in this case, it's yeah. all but explicit that we're saying. No, the law on its face yeah. says that they are treated as second class citizens. I mean, it doesn't use those words. No, but like, yeah, <laughs> specific ethnic groups just flat out can be deprived of all of their rights, more or less whenever we choose to, as long as, and this is sort of the hinge of the majority opinion in this case, as long as we're at war. Basically. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, you know, maybe it's to his credit, because if you're going to make the argument that the government can do whatever the heck it wants to whoever the heck it wants, as long as military leaders say that it is important to winning the war, maybe it really is better to devote a few words to that. <laughs> yeah. But eight, eight pages long is what it ends up being. And that's we sort of gave away the argument already. That basically is the argument. Yeah. And if you and just in case you think we're exaggerating. Let me read a couple quotations from the opinion for you. So this is from Justice Black's opinion. Nothing short of apprehension by the proper military authorities of the gravest imminent danger to public safety can constitutionally justify either. And when he says either there, he means this case or a previous one that had heard by the court that yep. dealt with uh, the curfew issue that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, he goes on. But exclusion from a threatened area, no less than curfew, has a definite and close relationship to the prevention of espionage and sabotage. The military authorities, charged with the primary responsibility of defending our shores, concluded that curfew provided inadequate protection and ordered exclusion. That's basically the entire argument. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just, just to be clear, I think you probably, folks probably get it, but by exclusion, what they mean is exclusion from those areas, in other words, forcible relocation, internment concentration exclusion from basically the western quarter of the united states yeah 
And they go on. So this, again, he says a few pages down, like curfew, exclusion of those of Japanese origin was deemed necessary because of the presence of an unascertained number of disloyal members <laughs> of the group, most of whom we have no doubt were loyal to this country. Uh-huh. Most of them, I assume, are good people, David. Yeah, well, and I, we don't know how many potentially traitorous people there are, but we know they're out there, and therefore... We know there are probably some. Yeah, therefore... It doesn't say, it doesn't say an unascertained but extant number. It's just an unascertained number. The number could be that's, zero. That's true. That's a fair point. We have not ascertained that it isn't zero. Right. It's, we don't even know that it's a non-zero number. We just know that there yeah. could be people that look like this that are threats to national security. Yeah. Because better a that thousand is sufficient justification men. to overcome strict scrutiny. Yeah, better a thousand innocent men be deprived of all their rights than a few potential spies be permitted to continue living in their houses with you know until we can at least try them. Yeah, that's how that saying goes, right? Yeah, I think that's I think that's the aphorism. <laughs> yeah, and it's you know they were never compensated for this in any way. They never really apologized. Korematsu really hasn't even been overruled by the court. You know, there were sort of congressional enactments uh, saying, you know, that the, the conviction of Mr. Korematsu specifically. So I think he, he was a guy that refused to leave, wasn't he? That's the reason yes. why he was able to bring this case. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Most of the people of Japanese ancestry who are being interred across the country, they don't have access to lawyers. They don't have access to courts. They can't really sue over it. The only person who really has the ability to do that is somebody who defied the order. So mm -hmm. he's subject to criminal charges here for having disobeyed that order. I think he does end up getting exonerated like in the 1980s. Not even sure he was still alive at the time. But yeah, yeah we decided we didn't like that anymore. And we were going to do kind of a symbolic gesture. And to this day, the closest the Supreme Court has come to actually repudiating this opinion was not to explicitly overrule it, just to sort of say, you know, that's a bad opinion. Mm -hmm. in an opinion on an unrelated issue in Trump v. Hawaii. So that's obviously a very recent case. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that was part of the 2018 term for the court. And what Justice Roberts writing the opinion of the court said there was, the dissent's reference to Korematsu, however, affords the court the opportunity to make express what is already obvious. Korematsu was gravely wrong the day it was decided, has been overruled in the court of history, and to be clear, has no place in law under the Constitution. So this is not good law, but it has never. there's never been a case explicitly overruling it. They just kind of say, you know, it's de facto overruled. We're not going to do that anymore. Yeah. You know an opinion's bad when it has to get overruled that way. Yeah, so, so that's what Justice Black had to say. Basically, you know, if, it's, if there's a military threat and the military leaders say that it's necessary, well, we got to do it. That's the only way, even if it's unconstitutional. So yeah. we're going to... We're going to uphold this, say that they can do it. Justice Frankfurter is the next opinion that we're going to look at. He's a concurring opinion. Mm -hmm. So when you have a concurring opinion, what that means is that you agree with the judgment of the court. You agree with the outcome of the case, but you disagree with the reasoning. So yeah. surely his has got to be a little bit better, right? He's not a member <laughs> of the Ku Klux Klan. So he's got to be a little better than, than Justice Black, right? Well, you might be tempted to think so, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, generally, I, all things being equal, if someone's a member of the clan and someone else isn't, I would assume that their opinions are, by and large, better. So, so he actually ends up agreeing with Justice Black that actions that are deemed as necessary by military leadership during a time of war are okay and should be allowed. Where he disagrees with Justice Black is that Justice Black says that such actions 
are necessary and therefore the court should uphold what would otherwise be unconstitutional. Yeah. Justice Frankfurter says that the fact that the military leaders have deemed these decisions necessary makes them inherently constitutional. Yeah. <laughs> and he actually says that explicitly. He says, that action is not to be stigmatized as lawless because like action in times of peace would be lawless. To talk about a military order that expresses an allowable judgment of war needs by those entrusted with the duty of conducting a war as an unconstitutional order is to suffuse a part of the Constitution with an atmosphere of unconstitutionality. The respective yeah. spheres of action of military authorities and judges are, of course, very different. Yeah. It, you know, we've talked on this show before about the fallacy called begging the question. which, In other words, you make one of your arguments your conclusion. So, you know, yeah. in this case, oh, you know, they, they would be allowed to do this if it were constitutional. Therefore, it's constitutional. He does that in the span yeah. of about 10 words. Because the, the just, Lex Rex is the best podcast to listen to. I'm sorry, the Lex Rex Institute podcast is the best podcast to listen to because the Lex Rex Institute podcast is just so much better than other podcasts. Right. It, when you say an allowable judgment of war, you've already concluded that it's permitted. That's right. when that, that's the entire question, is whether or not it's permitted under the Constitution. Um, yeah. Add the laugh track here, David. <laughs> I, do, uh, I don't want to, but okay. <laughs> I don't do like it. this. I don't like the laugh track. Do it. It's an executive order. Oh, uh, you got me. You got me. <laughs> and you yeah. know, in a and time, it's a of, time peace. of war, it's a war against not having comedy, which yeah. actually, you know, th that's the real risk of, of decisions like this one. I mean, there's a, there's a myriad of other risks here. But the real risk is you can just call something a war, and then you can yeah. do whatever the heck you want. War I mean, there's drugs. a reason why our Constitution doesn't build in emergency provisions. Yeah. Our founding fathers were very aware that abuses tend to happen when emergency is declared. You yep. want rules that will work in times of emergency without having to throw them out. In fact, that was the immediate context for the Constitution. Is, you know, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Yep. You end up getting the Constitution as a direct response to Shay's rebellion. Yeah. Because Shay's, after Shay's rebellion, we see that the, the Articles of Confederation, the Congress under that, there's just really no mechanism to do things like deal with emergencies. The Constitution yeah. is explicitly made to be able to deal with emergencies. It should not be suspended in times of war, much less just have people stubbornly insist that it hasn't been suspended because it's a given that you're not going to follow it in times of war, which is basically what Justice Frankfurter seems to think. Right. Yeah. And it's not as though the the founders of the United States were unfamiliar with the concept of emergency powers. They knew their Roman history. They knew that the Romans would appoint a dictator, literally a dictator. That was the name of the position in emergencies. And he just had, you know, basically absolute authority. They were aware that this was a thing people did and they chose not yeah. to do it. <laughs> There's a great deal of discussion on that, both yeah. in the Constitutional Convention and the state ratifying convention. Yeah. You know, there, there, there are voices that say, why don't we just have a regular set of powers over here and emergency powers over here? And those voices lose out. They say, no, no emergency powers. Right. Because you always stay in a state of perpetual emergency when that happens. Yeah. You know, you can deem anything a sufficient enough threat if you are unscrupulous and want power. It's very easy to do. And it really, it really is pretty telling. They tend to refer to those things as warps. You know, we yeah. have we have the war on the coronavirus. We've got yeah. the war on drugs. We've got the war on poverty. 
Yep. All of these things led to the suspension of constitutional right. Mm -hmm. Anyway, here's a great, here's a gem of a quotation. This one actually was one David sent me out before we started, and I just thought it was horrible. So I want to <laughs> read this quote from Justice Frankfurter. He says, and we have had recent occasion to quote approvingly the statement of former Chief Justice Hughes that the war power of the government is the power to wage war successfully. Yeah. So, the power of the government, the war power of the government is the power to wage war successfully. Therefore, the validity of action under the power of war must be judged wholly in context of war. Yeah. The power to wage war successfully. Yeah, which, what is that? Well, we can't know that. Only the military can know that is, is basically how that logic goes. You need to win, right, David? Yeah, you do need to win. That's true. Yeah, that's important. Uh-huh. But, you know, mere laymen, lawyers, judges, plaintiffs, can't possibly know what it takes to wage a war successfully. Only the experts could do that. So we need to just defer to whatever they say, because whatever is necessary is permitted. Well, and I, I think the, the issue is even worse than that. It's not just that we can't judge what's necessary. It's that yeah. inherently... If, if we lose our principles, what are we fighting for? Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Benjamin Franklin very famously and very aptly said that those who would surrender their liberty for security deserve neither and will lose both. Yeah. And that, that was a very wise thing to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> liberty is scary. Liberty is dangerous. It sometimes does expose you to dangers. There's a real reason people have gone for tyrants over the century. Yep. We shouldn't succumb to that just because we're in a war. I mean, this is really... This is not the finest hour of the Supreme Court. No. <laughs> whether whether the, the reason was racism or just abject fear of the enemy or whatever it was, I frankly don't really care. Right. This is shameful. This is truly shameful. Yep. Anyway, so we've got a couple justices that disagree with the decision. Mm -hmm. Want to just focus briefly on Roberts and Murphy. So what Roberts has to say, and remember, Roberts has been a past winner of our Hall of, or a past a how do we how do we say that uh, somebody else who has been found in our hall of shame yeah uh has made a past appearance in the hall of shame he's a he's received the award once before but today you know at least he doesn't sign on with the majority opinion in this case what he has to say is it is the case of convicting a citizen as punishment for not submitting to imprisonment in a concentration camp based on his ancestry and solely because of his ancestry without evidence or inquiry concerning his loyalty and good disposition toward the united states if this be a correct statement of the facts disclosed by this record, and facts of which we take judicial notice, I need hardly labor the conclusion that constitutional rights have been violated. Yeah. And indeed, he doesn't. He doesn't really even get into the myriad rights that have been violated here, because he's, he's pretty much right. You know, if that's the position we're taking. Yeah, what, what are we even arguing about here? Yeah, may God have mercy upon our soul. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's not... Uh, so Murphy has, I, the only reason I want to read a part of Murphy's dissenting opinion is I think it's a good demonstration that not everybody at this time period, but just a horrible racist. I think sometimes we have a tendency to view the past yeah. as very backward. You know, everybody was just kind of a bigot back then. So Murphy's opinion, I think, should dispel some of that. He says, I dissent, therefore, from this legalization of racism. Racial discrimination in any form and in any degree has no justifiable part whatever in our democratic way of life. It is unattractive in any setting, but it is utterly revolting among a free people who have embraced the principles set forth in the Constitution of the United States. All residents of this nation are kin in some way, by blood or culture, to a foreign land. Yet they are primarily and necessarily a part of a new and distinct civilization of the United States. 
They must accordingly be treated at all times as the heirs of the American experiment and is entitled to all the rights and freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution. That's well said. I mean, that, that's, that's very well said. I, I don't have any other comments on that. Yeah. Uh, if you want to move to the last uh, dissenting opinion, go ahead. That's, I think, yeah. where we ought to go now. Yeah, so this, this is Justice Jackson, and I think he does a very good job of sort of drilling into some of the worst effects of this decision. Uh, he says, much is said of the danger to liberty from the army program for deporting and detaining these citizens of Japanese extraction, which, you know, fair enough. We've talked about how horrible that was. But he goes on. But a judicial construction of the due process clause that will sustain this order is a far more subtle blow to liberty than the promulgation of the order itself. Yeah. A yep. mil uh, it, I'm going to skip down a bit. So uh, once a judicial opinion rationalizes such an order to show that it conforms to the Constitution, or rather rationalizes the Constitution to show that the Constitution sanctions such an order, and he seems to be thinking of Frankfurter there, I would say, the court for all time has validated the principle of racial discrimination in criminal procedure and of transplanting American citizens. The principle then lies about like a loaded weapon, ready for the hand of any authority that can bring forward a plausible claim of an urgent need. And that's exactly why Korematsu has to be bad precedent. Yeah. Because if Korematsu is binding precedent for the court, there are no due process rights. Exactly. If you can be attached to a suspect group of some kind, whether race or otherwise, then there's, you know, suddenly there's pretext for violating, or excuse yeah. me, not violating, suspending your rights. And we focus pretty strongly on the, the 14th Amendment equal protection claims here yeah. because those are sort of what predominate in the court's opinion. Uh, that's sort of the racial discrimination component of this. We focused a lot on that. Really, I think the far more egregious issue here, not that the, the racial discrimination is, is in any way forgivable, I think that's horrendous, but really what this does to due process rights, I think, is the great threat of the Korematsu decision. Yeah. And that's exactly what Justice Jackson draws our attention to. Because rights of the accused are so foundational to a just social order. If you essentially say that you don't have any of those rights, you know, there's no right to a hearing, there's no right to be heard before a court of any kind, we can take away your rights if we deem that you're a sufficient threat based on the group that you're a member of. Yeah. Goodbye, Liberty. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things that for some reason, people rarely seem to be really willing to stand up and, and take a strong stand for issues that, that pertain to rights of the accused. I think part of that's because our media depictions are so often, you know, the, the scumbag defense attorney trying to protect the guilty and all this stuff. And I think part of it is also no one thinks of themselves as potentially facing criminal charges, yeah. but if you erode the protections, they, also, they, they put a lot of trust in man rather than the law. Yeah. Because they assume that our leaders are basically responsible people. They're not the sort that, and if they do make the decision to deprive people of their rights, it's going to be a situation where it's really necessary. It's not just going to be for political reasons or something stupid. Yeah. But the problem is, you know, A, that's not a, a good assumption as we see here. You know, the, the thing that these people were guilty of was being of Japanese descent. That was, you know, yeah. that was what they did wrong in the eyes of the government. Which probably had a very negative media portrayal at the time. In fact, there's no probably yeah. about it. I've seen, I've seen more propaganda. Yeah. Even, even uh, Dr. Seuss got in on that one. Um, yeah. But, that uh, was not his finest moment either. I don't think they still sell that one. I don't think kids. they do either. But, and, you know, even 
even apart from that too, the, the more you erode the rights that are afforded to people who are accused of things, the more dangerous it becomes just to be accused of something. Yeah. And anyone yeah, can that's be exactly accused. Right. Anyone can be accused. You know, there may not be good evidence for it. You may not have done anything that's even remotely suspicious. But if accusation carries with it, you know, all of these penalties, all of these losses of rights, then it's, you know, it's dangerous just to have someone accuse you. That's a great way to tie it to what we talked about last week in the French Constitution. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that was great, David. <laughs> Although I, I will point out that here, they're not even being accused of anything. Uh, yeah, other than being Japanese. Yeah, I mean, and they yeah, are in fact guilty of that insofar as you can be guilty of being a particular ethnicity. Right. But anyway. Anyway, it, totally absurd. Yeah. It's utterly shameful. Yeah. There's only really probably one decision in our history that's worse than this one. I, it ought to be shocking there are any that are worse than this one. Yeah. But there's one that might be a contender for it. We may talk about that in the future. I'm not going to spoil what it is. We probably But this is very it. likely the second worst decision in the history of the United States. So yeah. that's pretty shameful. Shame. 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 All right. And... Our next topic is we're going to go back and revisit something we, we talked about briefly in the last episode, which is this trial of Alex Jones, in part just because, wow, a lot of really bizarre stuff has happened about it. It's it's you know, yeah, it's, I, I've not followed this one too closely, David. So you're going to have to kind of guide me through the facts, but yeah. I, I can comment on them as we go. I've, I've done my best to sort of gather all of the the factual background but in you know in the course of that i realized there's a lot of stuff that a lot of stuff happened so there's a lot of uh, of opportunity for us to sort of explain certain facets of the law but yeah man this is a weird one anyway so the actual name of this case i guess we should start there it's heslin v jones heslin was the father i believe of one of the children who was killed at sandy hook elementary in 2012 that's what this all stems from basically a group of those parents suing alex jones for defamation because he made claims that they you know were crisis actors that this all everything that happened at sandy hook was a conspiracy a, a hoax to justify tightened gun control a lot of stuff going on there which according at least to bloomberg news at some point during this trial, Jones testified that he now believes that the attack was real and that it was irresponsible of him to have said otherwise. I haven't been able to verify that with direct court records. That doesn't really... But... With a defamation claim, that doesn't really do anything because you still said, you know, you yeah. still no, no, exactly. made the defamatory statement. Yeah, so it doesn't actually affect the underlying cause of action there. And in fact, you know, this was another thing I learned that I thought was fascinating. Jones actually lost the case by default judgment. Yeah, that, um, that was that was the main thing I wanted to talk about here because yeah. I've seen a lot of misunderstanding about what's going on with that. Right. So we yeah, we should start there. So last year in September of last year, as I understand it, Jones lost the case via default judgment. And probably a lot of you are not familiar with what that means. So, Alex, why don't you sort of give a, a brief rundown? Yeah, it's basically a failure to litigate. So if one party, if, if the plaintiff files a complaint against someone and the other party fails to respond to that complaint within the prescribed time frame under state law, then the plaintiff can move for what's called a default judgment, yeah. which means that the judge assumes all facts as alleged by the plaintiff to be true, yeah. 
and then rules on the case on that basis. So you have no argument about facts, no argument about what happened, you know, did so-and-so say X, Y, Z. That argument doesn't have to take place. Yeah. But you can still argue legal points. You can argue, you know, whether or not this action that was alleged rises to the point of actually constituting defamation. Uh, so that's what most of this stuff ended up being over. May have been a strategic thing to default. I don't know, because my bet is the majority of evidence submitted was just clips from the Alex Jones show. <laughs> Likely. So I don't know that it's really worth hiring a lawyer to dispute any of that. But that, that may be what's going on. I haven't followed it terribly closely, but that's what a default judgment is. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that, that happened last year. And in the meantime, you know, this more recent phase had an actual jury trial again because of the default judgment in in large part what it was about was sort of figuring out basically how liable jones was so in practical terms it was it was more about determining the penalty than anything else and that's basically where we ended up we'll get into that in a bit because the amount of money that was awarded was noteworthy and for several reasons and we'll get to that in a bit but we talked previously about the lawyer that Jones had hired and he, you know, he was caught on camera flipping off the opposition in the courtroom. We, we talked about that, but something else happened that was absolutely bizarre uh, in my judgment. And I, I tried to do some research on this somehow or other. They produced documents to the opposition attorneys that they clearly did not mean to contents of Mr. Jones's phone and, you know, the entire contents of his phone, right? Basically, as, as I understand it, stuff that they had been, you know, requests to produce previously. And as far as I can tell, had denied that these files existed. So they, they you know, the, the opposition said, produce all the text messages that you have about this, that, and the other thing. And they submitted some stuff and said, this is all we've got. And then inadvertently released a bunch of other stuff that seemed to be, you know, directly on point. And I did some some poking into what happened. Yeah, so here. so it's, so the way the discovery works is you make requests for certain documents, saying you, know, you give a description, yeah, and they have to respond with documents that respond to that request. And they they can refuse to produce stuff because they have various objections to the production of those documents. Right. But they have to say what their objection is. A lot of times they have to produce a privilege log saying which documents are subject to which privileges, why they haven't produced them. So what happened here is. The plaintiff's lawyer, so the lawyer for these Sandy Hook parents, sent a request for various documents to Alex Jones's lawyer. The lawyer responded back, didn't say, you know, we have these documents, but we're not giving them to you because they're privileged. They said, we do not have these documents. Yeah. Then later, inadvertently sent a link to the entire contents of their cell phone to the Sandy Hook parents' lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> they they then, like, the next couple minutes, I guess, send another email asking them to please disregard the, the previous. previously sent yeah. email. They didn't do this. I, there's a lot of snapback laws, which basically means that if a lawyer tells you to disregard evidence he sent over, then you do have to indeed disregard it. I don't know the details of Texas law on that. Yeah. But well, regardless, <laughs> if they look through that, the contents of that phone and they find that there are documents that should have been produced, that were responsive to their request, that they were not told about, that's bad. Yeah, that's bad. And so I did some... That's some, real bad. I did some, you know, some Googling to try to figure out what exactly went on here. And as reported anyway, from this is this was reported on by the ABA Journal, the paralegal for Jones's lawyer was the one who sent this link. 
His lawyer then sent the email saying, please disregard. And I, I actually did look into what the Texas rule is on this point. And oh, good, good. So the relevant sort of provision here, this is a uh, rule 193.3 of the Texas civil uh, rules for civil procedure. Basically, it, it, it's what you, you alluded to earlier. You basically need to produce a privilege log. You need to identify what documents are subject to privilege and which privilege oh, sure, they're sure. subject that, to. I, I meant as far as the, uh, the snapback provision. Yeah, so basically the way it works is a party who produces material or information without intending to waive a claim of privilege, so in other words, inadvertently producing privileged information, does not waive that claim under these rules or the rules of evidence if within 10 days or a shorter time ordered by the court after blah, 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 you know, so on and so forth, they amend okay. the response so, and so, identify the material. So the snapback provision, and, and for those of you who don't speak legalese, the snapback provision only applies if the evidence that was inadvertently disclosed yeah. actually is subject to the privilege. Right. If and it isn't privileged information, so if it wasn't subject to attorney-client privilege or whatever the privilege may be, and you inadvertently disclose it, you're out of luck. Yeah, basically. And you you need to do your work there too. You need to identify what you're saying was privileged and why it was privileged, which none of which yeah. they did. They just said, yeah, yeah please which, which ignore. Means that, which means Jones probably doesn't even have a good malpractice claim against the lawyer. Yeah. Because he was withholding evidence. Right. You know, that, that's your responsibility as a client as well. You know, he's the one that has the documents in his possession. He's the one that's got to produce them. You know, if, if his lawyer unilaterally made the decision, we're not going to send this over, even though you sent it to me and you totally innocently thought it would be produced, sure, then he might have a malpractice claim. Yeah. But if there's if there's any kind of communication where Alex Jones was involved in withholding that, that evidence, I don't think he'd have a, mal a malpractice claim there. So anyway, that, that was one of the stranger sort of element in it. I thought it was a pretty good window into, you know, getting into how discovery works and how privilege works. Cause you know, it kind of encapsulates some of the common issues you might run into there. Yeah. But that's not all that happened. I found this out when I was reading about this case, thought this was noteworthy. According to AP, the Associated Press, Jones arrived at the courthouse wearing a piece of tape across his mouth with the phrase, save the first written on it. So he was evidently positioning this as a first amendment issue. And I I hey, he disagrees with with the with the president. He was so excited about then because you know, Donald Trump wants to open up all the defamation laws. Yeah, and I wanted to get your input on this because this this struck me as odd. But you know, again, I'm no expert. I'm not even. Not only am I not speaking in the capacity of an attorney, I'm not an attorney. So I was curious what you thought about this. That same AP article argued that if you could establish that the the speech that is in question in this defamation suit is protected under the First Amendment, that that would be basically a, a, a viable way to reduce your liability. That seemed very odd to me. No, that, that doesn't make any sense, because if it's if it's not subject to free speech protection, if it isn't protected by First Amendment rights, then yeah. why, the, why the heck would there be a First Amendment way to reduce the damage? Yeah. And on the other hand, if it is subject to First Amendment rights, you can't be penalized for it at all. Yeah. So I, I found that strange and, and confusing. But that's 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 a very clearly written by someone that's not a lawyer. That's that, that was my uh, my sense of it. I, I wanted to to at least have you weigh in on that briefly and see if there was something obvious I was missing. But yeah, I, I haven't read the article. What what do they say exactly? But oh, this is really stupid. This is really stupid. I found it. 
Okay. That's really stupid. Because these are totally irrelevant cases. Is it worth remarking on? No, it's not it's not worth remarking on. Okay. Anyway, so ultimately the jury awarded a fairly significant amount of money to the the Samuel fairly parents. significant, I'll say so. Yeah. So and you know, I, the, the largest judgment I've ever obtained. Mm-hmm. Actually, I obtained this like last week. Was about eight point eight million dollars. That was a huge judgment. Yeah. Yeah. Here we've got a judgment for forty-five point two million dollars. And that's only the punitive damages. And actually, that's just punitive damages, which is crazy because nearly every state caps punitive damages at you know some some multiplier of the compensatory damages. Right. So, so that's to be clear. So, ordinarily, the way that you calculate damages in pretty much any case where where money is at stake, a case where you're trying to get a money recovery from somebody else, the way you calculate that is by looking at all of the harm that occurred as a result of the defendant's conduct. So, you got like a personal injury case, and you know, say that your next door neighbor kicked you in the shin, and because of that, you had to go to the doctor. You can count that as part of your damages. You also couldn't go to work. You can count that as part of your damages. But usually it's that sort of thing. It's got to be the sum of all the different sorts of harm that you suffered. You can also get emotional damages. That's harder to get than most people think. Usually it's like if you see a loved one die in front of you or something like that. Yeah. There, there are other instances where you can get it. But you can, you can also get pain and suffering. But uh, for the most part, you know, it, it's kind of hard to put a dollar figure on those. Judges tend to be fairly cautious about doing so. But for the most part, damages are going to be compensation for the harm that you've suffered. Yeah. Then there's another thing. So that, that's, that's what we call compensatory damages. We call it that because it's supposed to compensate you. The courts are, exist to make people whole. We say that when somebody wrongs somebody else, they've been deprived of something. Right. The court exists to correct that, to make sure that you get back what you've been deprived. So you get the value of the harm that was done to you. You know, very fair. It's based on lex talionis, the, you know, the idea of an eye for an eye. If somebody takes your eye, you're only entitled to an eye in compensation. You can't take more than that. Uh, that's a very strong principle in our law. been around since the days of ancient Rome. I don't want to belabor that too much, other than just to say that, that that's the way that compensation works. You know, typically, you don't just get millions and millions of dollars because somebody screwed you over on something. It's not just a, a way of winning the lottery. I know a lot of people view it that way. That's yeah. really sort of a terrible thing that people think. But the reason they think that is because of what we call punitive damages. Now, it's important to point out, punitive damages are not the norm. Very rare for you to get this in any case. Uh, you, you do typically get it in cases where, where conduct is particularly egregious. Yeah. So what is punitive damages? Well, punitive means to punish. So it damages intended to punish somebody. So the first kind was to compensate you. Punitive damages are going to be to punish the other person. And most states cap their punitive damages. I believe that Texas law caps punitive damages at two times compensatory, right? With uh, something yes. like that, or it might be like plus seven hundred fifty grand or something like that. So yeah. two times plus seven fifty grand. Yes, um, that that's is... supposed to be the cap, right? In this case, so in this case, what would that be like? Ten, like under ten million dollars punitive damage, right? Uh, yeah, uh, like nine million basically, because they they awarded four point one million in compensatory. So if you were doing times two plus seven fifty grand, that would basically be nine million. Instead, forty five point two. Yeah. So this is very, you know, this is almost certainly a violation of Texas law. Yeah. 
also very likely a constitutional violation, a due process violation, since that's grossly out of proportion to the harm that was done here as judged by the jury. Yeah, well, in... So, know, yeah, probably not going to get that. Well, so, several comments I want to make on that point, though. One is the attorney for the Sandy Hook parents, I believe, requested that the jury award punitive damages of something like 150 or even $200 million. Well, yeah, you, you can ask for it. Right, and I, I think he explicitly... You can ask for whatever you want. I mean, you always pick a high number. I think they explicitly <laughs> said they want to bankrupt... I forget what the name of his corporation actually is. Is it InfoWars or is that just the name of the show? I can't remember. Probably. But it's probably InfoWars. At, at any rate, uh, so there was that. So, you know. So they're, they're trying to win the InfoWar. <laughs> Fair enough. They're, yeah. they're, they're fighting powers. on the side of, of not having information. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. And we, emergency power is to fight the war on information. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, yeah. They should have argued that. That's pretty good. <laughs> but... There is another element to this that, you know, it, it, it was reported in, I, I, I believe it was a New York Times article that I read about this, that, you know, they, they reported as, oh, some question. Oh, I just, I looked it up, David. It's, it's Free Speech Systems LLC, so it's not okay. InfoWars. All right. <laughs> so, but win the war on free speech. Um, yeah. LLC. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. But the, the New York Times reported on this and said something like, oh, you know, some experts question the the constitutionality under the Texas Constitution of that statute that caps the damages. And so I, I wanted to look into that. The thing, the only thing they directly linked to was just uh, some woman's Twitter post. I looked into her. She turns out to be a Georgetown law professor. But her argument... Oh, who is it? Who, who, who was it? Her, her name is Heidi Lee Feldman. I'm not sure oh, if you're familiar with her. Yeah. but um, don't know her. And her argument basically seems to be that the Texas state constitution guarantees a right to trial by jury and says that... Yeah, Seventh Amendment. Yeah, it, there was some particular phrase that she was harping on, shall remain inviolate. And so the argument was, therefore, any limitation that's imposed on jury's ability to award damages is unconstitutional under the yeah, and that's, Texas constitution. So, so under the Texas constitution? Yeah. The argument that I've heard is a Seventh Amendment one, which you know, obviously Seventh Amendment reads, in suits of common law where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of common law. So the argument would be, as, as this is sort of the strongest argument that I've heard, would be that the question of damages is a question of fact, which must be tried by a jury, and that a statutory, so a legislative enactment mm -hmm. limiting punitive damages would be a rule other than what is prescribed by the rules of common law. So there would be an argument for a Seventh Amendment violation. I think that's kind of specious. Yeah. Well, because I, I don't think punitive damages is a question of fact. I think compensatory damages are absolutely a question of fact. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Because in one case, you're actually trying to ascertain how much damage was caused Whereas if you're if you're going to punitive damages, you're saying how much do we want to punish this person? Yeah, that, what is the appropriate amount to punish somebody? Yeah, I think that might that is the appropriate question for a jury because there's certainly a factual component to that. Yes, but if the law defines what is appropriate, yeah, then their factual determination has to be within the confines of the law. Right, and yeah, it it seems odd to me to suggest that you can't 
set boundaries to those sorts of things, you know. Right. That, that would be consistent with the rules of common law, in my view. Yeah. Like, you know, we set lim- statutory limits to punishment for all kinds of things. Yeah, that's that's consistent with the rules of common law. That's right. what the law is on that issue. Yeah. So the law of what would be fair to award to somebody, you know, what's what's a fair punishment would be yeah. a limit of two times plus seven fifty grand. Yeah. And anyway, and so I, I with with respect to the argument specifically about the Texas Constitution, because that's the one that I saw. I hadn't seen Seventh Amendment issues, although that, you know, does make sense that people would go there. But Specifically with the Texas issue, I followed up on it, and they amended their constitution a while back and basically directly addressed this, you know, notwithstanding any other provision of this constitution after January 1st, 2005, the legislature by statute may determine the limit of liability for all damages and losses, however characterized, and, you know, it goes on. Um, So Yeah, very. that's very clear under the Texas constitution. Yeah, you'd think, but... Anyway, I, I found that odd. So anyway, all that to say, I can all but guarantee, you know, I'm prognosticating here, but I, I feel very, very sure that Jones will challenge that award and will probably win if I had to guess. Yeah, for, for, for $45 million, it's probably worth the legal fees. Yeah. Although this is somewhat complicated by the fact that I think that, oh, what, what was it called? The Free Speech Systems LLC. I believe they're in Chapter 11 right now. I did not know that, but that, that is interesting. So that's somewhat complicated by that because you can get rid of some of those awards through Chapter 11. Hmm. Uh, chapter 11 is a bankruptcy that basically, uh, that, that helps you to reorganize your business so that you can shed some of your liabilities. There are exceptions in the bankruptcy code for... Uh, injuries that are caused to somebody else, usually through malice, maliciously caused injuries. It's the de- the defamation one is a little bit trickier, but they could potentially get that removed through the uh, Chapter Eleven. Hmm. I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about bankruptcy too. There's a, a lot of my work's been in that area because there's that that's very interesting work, but uh, that's yeah a lot of misunderstandings about that. But that's large. That's probably why he's filing for Chapter Eleven here. He just wants to get rid of that liability. Yeah. That's that's interesting. I did not know that they were they were doing that, but and you know obviously, yeah, the ins and outs of bankruptcy law are far far outside of my wheelhouse, but they happen to be more or less exactly in yours. So, and this actually, you know, the funny thing is that's much more complex and complicated than constitutional law. Yeah, that's it. If you find somebody, because a lot of bankruptcy lawyers are sort of just the uh, the mills where they'll take personal bankruptcies, you know, for individuals that have become insolvent and they just they file petitions and they go to 341a hearings and they're done you know it's it's not not too long or involved of a process if you, if you find law firms that are involved in, in complex business reorganization matters or other things that are they're more complex issues in bankruptcy that's probably one of the most strategically intensive areas of law mm-hmm. i mean actually our past president donald trump took full advantage of our bankruptcy code as well uh, through a number of very elaborate structuring of his assets Again, complicated. I don't. I don't want to get into that too much, but I, that, that's very likely the reason why they're filing for bankruptcy. It's not because they can't pay their bills. It's because they want to get rid of that liability. Yeah. Anyway, so that's you know I'm I I won't say that's all there is to that case because I'm sure there's a lot more going on there. That was what I was able to find in a few hours of research looking into this stuff. Well, and, and it's I, I think it's you know we're not trying to cover all the juicy details of the case anyway. We're trying to clarify a few points. Yeah. So when you guys have a conversation with somebody about this Alex Jones thing, you can say no. Here's how it actually works. Right. 
because it, it, it's there have been a lot of misconceptions going around about this, and I wanted to make sure that some of those were cleared up. So anyway, with that, we should probably move on to yeah. So our... buy some colloidal silver. Uh, <laughs> buy the um, the protein supplements. The brain invest pills, in gold. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> All the good stuff. Yeah, yeah, the rain filters; those are important too. Yeah, you know, uh, you don't want to, you don't want those chemtrails to get in your tea, or whatever the heck chemtrails do. Yeah, I don't know. I, who knows? Uh, anyway, we should probably move on now. We're trying to keep this one shorter. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was one of the goals. All right, folks, kids, gather around. Everyone, get together. It's time for our newest segment, Captain Kangaroo Court. <laughs> Thank you for that intro. We're gonna we're gonna try to find uh, a musical theme that goes along with this. We haven't done that yet at the time of recording, but I'm gonna try to make that happen by the time we release this episode. It's everyone's favorite segment of the podcast. It's, <laughs> by, by the way, oh, I should probably shouldn't even tell this story because it's so bad for the people involved. I won't say who was involved in this conversation, but I, I once overheard a conversation. It's nobody at the Lex Rex Institute. Don't worry about that. But it's, I once overheard a conversation where uh, one person asked another, why do they call it a kangaroo court? The other person answered, I think it's from England because kangaroos live there and the courts were really bad in England. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, yeah, not quite, but... Yeah, that wasn't right. It's called a kangaroo court because it leaps to conclusions. Yeah. And kangaroos are not from England and the courts are not especially bad in England. You know, if you had to judge them across the, across the world, they'd be like toward the... Pretty close to the top, you know. It's yeah, like, no, the I'll, government of Dubai has specifically petitioned the Queen so they can have courts that apply British common law rules. You know, British common law rules are pretty widely regarded as the best in the world. So that that was pretty wrong. Yeah. But anyway, that, I thought that was kind of amusing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so th- this segment, this is the first time we're doing this. It's uh, it's going to be a bit looser than our hot take segment, and just sort of focusing on strange oddities in the legal world or you know sometimes even slightly tangential to the legal world yeah so we we had a problem where people were sending us stuff for hot takes Uh uh-huh and david you know being the um the zealous gatekeeper that he is (laughs) prevented a lot of that stuff from getting to the show because it wasn't strictly hot takes but it was kind of bizarre stuff going on in law yeah so we figured better to loosen the category a bit if you want to talk about bizarre stuff in law, if you have bizarre happenings that took place in anywhere in the world that relate to legal issues, Let us those know. are now all yeah. fair game. Go ahead and send those to us. You can send those to info at lexrex.org. Yeah. Info at lexrex.org. Subject line, Captain Kangaroo Court. Yeah. And we do have a handful of submissions already for this from various people that we let know about this segment. I haven't had a chance to go through all those yet, so we're going to start with just a couple that I found recently that I, th- I thought were worth talking about. And so let's start off with, this is, a, this is a headline from The Hill, which is sort of a political news and commentary website. And I'll just read you the headline. Bolton, quote, embarrassed at, quote, low price, allegedly offered an assassination plot. So this is John Bolton, Former... Wait. <laughs> Whose assassination plot? Uh, was it one against him? Like, is he saying, whoa, they're paying that little to have me killed? Yes, what, what's he saying e- exactly. <laughs> so, apparently, at least according to this report... Yeah, I mean, that is a little bit upsetting, isn't it? Yeah, according to this report, 
a member of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran, which I believe is either just their sort of main military body or, you know, possibly their special forces. But at any rate, it's part of their their military structure. Um, quote, allegedly attempted to pay people to kill Bolton. And he he told Wolf Blitzer that he thought the amount offered was embarrassingly low at three hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> that is pretty low. Wolf Blitzer. You know, there, there are starting salaries out of law school that are higher than that. You know, first year graduates, <laughs> and it's, you, in a year you would make more money than the guy that was paid to kill Michael Bolton. Yeah, <laughs> it's, John, John it's, Bolton. Killing John Bolton. that guy will probably prevent Donald Trump from starting a war with your country, since I think he was generally the main voice pushing for those wars. Yeah, it seems like that'd be pretty high value. <laughs> So Wolf Blitzer said, the suspect put a $300,000 price tag on your head. What goes through your mind, Ambassador, hearing the details of this plot, as explained today in great detail by the U.S. Justice Department? So that was that was something I want to talk about in a bit, because the, the, the DOJ made an announcement about this. And we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll get we'll get into that. That, I, that. that was recently. That was under Merrick Garland, I assume. Right. It probably wasn't. Yeah, no, no. Th- this was a recent yeah, happening. This uh, this article was. Written just a couple days ago, actually. Um, so. Yeah, so then, my, so then, so then, Merrick Garland releases this because it's embarrassing to Michael Bolton. That's so petty. <laughs> you keep saying that, that guy. You, you keep know? you keep saying Michael Bolton. That's the uh, that's the singer famously referenced in Office Space. It's John Bolton. Just to oh, correct. I'm sorry. Yeah, John Bolton. <laughs> John Bolton. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and Bolton responded. <laughs> Well, I was embarrassed at the low price. I would have thought it would have been higher, but I guess maybe it was the exchange rate problem or something. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a big number, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, I, I actually don't even know what oh, the name the of the- 300,000 American, that's like 30 billion Iranian. Yeah, I, I actually don't even know what the name of the currency in Iran is, um, but- what Gift I, certificates that are only valid for use in the sovereign nation of Iran? Yeah, possibly. But and anyway, the, the article goes on. The Department of Justice announced the plot publicly earlier on Wednesday, saying Sharam Porsafi started planning to murder Bolton in October in likely retaliation for his dr- uh, involvement in a drone strike that killed Qasem Soleimani. You know, folks. Soleimani. So, Soleimani, right? Yeah. I, I, General Soleimani. It, it, it gets transliterated in different ways. In this case, they went with S-O-L. I've seen it S-U-L before. I'm not sure which yeah. is you know more accurate. But yeah. D- that's the guy that, that Trump said cried like, like a dog. Dogs don't cry, but yeah, no. Is that what he said? I don't. S- something like Chase that. hunting it down like a dog, right? So, something like that. That guy was a big deal. He was like the main general in the world that was opposing the U.S. Yeah, three hundred thousand does seem like a low number, honestly. I mean, given that Alex Jones is people soon, Alex Jones got yeah, like almost fifty million bucks just because he said that. Well, I guess he did say some horrible he, things. He said some bad stuff. Yeah. Been wantonly murdered. Yeah, he <laughs> said some bad stuff. But like, you know, that does seem low to me. Yeah, you know, so maybe, it, maybe Iran's strapped for cash. That, that's that's possible, or at least they don't have a lot hanging around in their sort of slush fund for assassinations. But anyway, w- one of the things I found most perplexing about this story is I'm not quite sure what the purpose of the Department of Justice, which you know, is supposed to you know focus on prosecution of American law is doing making announcements about what would oh, seem Oh David to, it's 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 anything goes over there at the DOJ right now. <laughs> well, I I'm not sure, you know, like what what is the upshot here cuz they they can't be expecting Iran to extradite this guy to us to face trial for this. No, I, I think they I think they intended for John Bolton to be offended by that. <laughs> that that's one interpretation that I had not considered. Um maybe they just went, yeah, rub his face in it into how low value apparently of a target he is. 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and we're gonna wrap up with the final bit for this time for this edition, I should say, of Captain Kangaroo Court. And again, I'm gonna start just by reading the, the headline here, and this is from ABA Journal. This was published on August 10th. Former court mediator is accused of mailing feces to public officials. Feces. Feces, yes. <laughs> and go, a mediator's doing that. Yes. So Boy, I bet that person was great at they, they mediation. Probably, yeah, you know, if this is what they believe and well, okay. So, so this is how we settle our disputes is we just we mail feces to Yeah, and the first court sentence officials. the first sentence here gives us some some broader context and may also shed a light on the way they handled their mediations because it says a fired mediator for an Ohio court is facing a federal charge. So, you know, one of the things that mediators often have to do is sort of adjudicate between employers and employees for various reasons. And yeah, well, usually what they do is two parties aren't getting along well. They yep. can't reach an agreement. Yep. But it, it's, you know, it's short of actually going to trial. It, it's sort of a more, more amicable arrangement. It's one where we can still sit down at the same table and possibly work things out if we have this guy that's sort of working as a go-between yep. for, for both of us. So you generally you want very level-headed people who are not, you know, not going to be quick to anger. That's who you want to be mediating things. Yeah, in this case... Uh, and, and David's right. A lot of these mediations are, are employer-employee disputes. If somebody gets fired for what they think is not for cause, they'll oftentimes want to sue their employer, and you'll mediate between an employer and an employee. I've never seen a mediator recommend for somebody else's case that they send feces to their employer. Yeah, no, I, I, I have not either. And hopefully he didn't do that during his actual you know career as a mediator. But, you know, you have to question the judgment at that point. Um, yeah. Anyway, it, it goes on to say, and, you know, I'll leave the guy's name out of it because, you know. It's, a, it's allegedly. Right. So, yeah, don't. Yeah. Um, so the, we don't know that he actually did it. Right. And the article prints his name, you know, because he has been charged. So that is on record somewhere. But, you know, I think it's probably better. to. Leave I, I think it. it's irresponsible to do that. Yeah. I don't. You, you know, it's we don't know that he did it. Don't. Yeah. So anyway, you, can, yeah. you, you know, you can add an alleged to all of these statements, but. They say that this guy was charged after a postal inspector observed him mail a letter at the drive-up mail uh, collection box in Akron, Ohio, while wearing a glove. The postal inspector op opened the box and found a letter addressed to Republican U.S. Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio. The letter included a greeting card with a dollar bill and suspected feces. Um, why did he give him a dollar? I assume it was that sort of classic prank. And a greeting prank. card. I, I assume it might have been that classic prank where you, you know, you wrap up a turd in a dollar bill. Uh, hoping oh, that someone I see. will open it because like, they want that dollar. Um, and maybe he seemed, you know, he was under the impression yeah. that a congressman might similarly be, be tempted by a dollar. But apparently this is not the only politician he sent this to. It's, it goes on to say they were asked to investigate three letters sent to Ohio state senators, similar letters sent to elected officials in California, Kentucky, Washington, D.C., and Ohio, several to federal courts. Um, so he's had quite the campaign, as it would seem. It, uh, allegedly, again, allegedly. I, I wonder if he's had much success off. I'm not sure, you know, and I'm not sure what the what the sort of success condition is here. Is it, you know, that they actually get poop on their hands? Is it just that, you know, he gets the satisfaction of knowing that he mailed them some poop? 
Um, not clear. I'm sure that they don't even open it themselves. It's, it's always staff that does that. that. That's a fair point. Yeah, it's probably some unpaid intern, sadly, who's having yeah, to deal like with that's, this. Even if that were a valid thing to do, and it's not. Yeah. Something to, yeah, something the, to the keep in mind. The target of your animosity is not actually getting hit by anything. Yeah, something to keep in mind in case you were considering a similar campaign of terror. Yeah, that's, <laughs> this is not legal advice, yeah. so I can't advise you legally whether or not you ought to send feces to your enemies. But I can say that your enemies are probably not likely to be the ones open. Yeah, at, at least if they're... Well, that's actually not true. I don't know who your enemies are. Your yeah. enemies might be the ones that will open it. If, but, if, but if it's judges or politicians, probably not. Yeah, pro probably going to be a clerk if it's if you're sending it to a court. Or, uh, yeah, like some poli-sci student who's interning with, with Congress if you send it to a politician. Yeah, some 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 youngster who's super who's excited to be able to work in our government and looking forward to yeah. future... Civil service, uh, opening a letter full of poop. Yeah, Mr. Smith goes to Washington and gets poop on his hands. I oh, guess. boy. Oh, I wonder what's going to be in, in oh, this letter. It's, it's dookie. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, yeah, don't do that to Mr. Smith. That's not nice. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's all That's all we've got for the this inaugural edition of Captain Kangaroo Court. But please do send in any anything you find that's just sort of weird, bizarre, amusing, unusual to do, even even however loosely, as we saw with a couple today. Next week, the legal world. we will talk to you about the roving judge gang. That's Oh, good point. Yes, I will make a note to, because that is perfect for this segment. Yeah, that's it's ideal. I mean, I think they ought to be our mascot. Yeah, that's a good point. See, maybe we can get t-shirts made up that would have yeah. the roving judge gang on it. Yeah, beware of the roving judge gang. You yeah. Know, it's, they, they're coming for you. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe they're coming for the, the people who get on the Supreme Court Hall of Shame. I don't know. But anyway, that's going to be all for today, folks. If you're looking for more high-quality LexRex Institute content, we do have a new co-host for our Ask an Attorney video series. Yep. His name is John Ahrens. He's president of the Long Beach chapter of the Salvation Army. And he's a great guy, a good friend of mine. I think you'll really enjoy those videos. Go ahead and we have our sort of inaugural episode of that. That went up last Friday. So check that out if you haven't yet, as well as our past episodes, although you know, we're changing the format for a reason. So if you were bored by those in the past. They're yeah. going to be different now. We, we <laughs> promise it's better. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's any more announcements for us right now. David, you got anything? Uh, not that I can think of. But uh, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope that you'll listen again. Night, folks. Bye.